hello and welcome to the Scuttlebutt Podcast. Our guest today is Caleb Taylor. Caleb is a former Marine rifleman uh, from 2009 to 2014. After exiting, he went back to school to get his bachelor's and master's uh, in global security studies and now works for FEMA and as a part-time writer for OAF Nation, covering everything from book reviews uh, to military history. Caleb, welcome to the show. Thanks, man. Excited to be here. We're Happy to have you, to man. Have We're you. excited too. Absolutely. I want to start out just kind of the way that we start off with everybody. Give us the the five minute spiel about what what brought you here to this point today. What led you to join the Marines? Uh, what possessed you to do that? And uh, sort of what got you into the field that you're in now? So, I mean, it's a long story. So feel free to cut me off at any point or just tell me to shut the fuck up. I get it. Uh, you know, <laughs> once I get going, it's hard to pump the brakes. So feel free to interject at any point. Um, Sounds good. But so high school, I, I didn't really, uh, I'm, I'm super good at school. Always have been. I, I was blessed with a mother that read to me a whole lot and encouraged me to read. Um, and that really opened a lot of doors for me and continues to do so today. Um, so I was always, you know, very good at schools, came supernaturally to me, very easy. Uh, so I didn't have to work very hard, which, you know, wasn't really great for me in the long term. Um, by high school, I wanted to be cool. I didn't really want to be a nerd doing my, you know, doing my homework and stuff like that. I wanted to fit in and make friends and be popular. So I kind of didn't take school incredibly seriously. Um, when my senior year approached, I knew that I could go straight to college, that um, it would be, you know, a bit of work because I'd have to go to community college first and then go to whatever state school after that. Um, but I also knew that, you know, doing so would be contingent upon me keeping, you know, good grades and, and not fucking around. And I knew, you know, that I was that gonna, wasn't going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. I was going <laughs> to fuck around. You know what I mean? You can't give me that kind of space. So, um, and my brother actually went down that path as well. And it took him so long. And I was like, I don't want to do that. Um, I had always been fascinated with military history. Uh, my mom's uncles all fought in World War II. Uh, my dad and both his brothers were in the military. Uh, my uncle was actually in the Navy as well. He's some kind of nuclear engineer on a sub. And he, he still is now. He's just a contractor making ungodly amounts of money. Um, yeah. And my other uncle went to West Point and retired as a lieutenant colonel. Um, whereas my dad was just a dumb Marine. So, uh, so uh, obviously there was no question I was going to go into the Marine Corps. It was like I couldn't – one of his uncles was in the Marines in Nam, so um, there was no – there wasn't really a question of me going into the Navy or the Air Force. I flirted with the idea of going to West Point until I realized that doing so meant that I had to take school way more seriously and um, that I needed to have done so years ahead of that point. So I was like, ah, fuck it. I'll just go in the Marine Corps, you know, I'll go to Iraq. Uh, Cause I had no idea, you know, I definitely had a death wish a bit and was like, you know, had my teenage heart broken and was like, you know what, fuck this. I'm going to get out of this town. I'm going to show them that I'm a hard ass and I'm going to go, you know, get killed in the war and be a fucking hero or something like that. Uh, so joined the Marine Corps, was going to go Intel cause I watched the newest Jason Bourne movie my senior year and was like, dude, Intel's the way to go. You know, this is it. <laughs> told my uncle who's who was uh who used to be an infantry officer and he was like no 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 he's like if you want to kick down doors and, and shoot bad guys you got to go in the infantry and I was like all right so told my recruiter and they were like nice man 
we always need bodies. And I was like, okay. Oh, that's a... Yeah, sounds good <laughs> what, if, what if they just say right yeah absolutely like oh i don't have to convince you to go be infantry like you just want to do it perfect sign yeah. here bush hard three copies yeah and uh you scored high on the asbab so you can get a bonus all you got to do is an extra year and i was like well hell yeah should i do 20 if you'd let me and so i got a five-year contract <laughs> for a three grand bonus and uh, off, <laughs> off what a went. deal was it yeah. even three grand up front or did they like separate it out over the the entire five years? So once I got done uh, the school of infantry, I got 2300, 2300, I think something like that, you know, a whopping two grand, which was, you know, which I blew the first weekend, obviously. Oh, yeah. I, and it's not even uh, have to. cool stuff, you know, you have to, uh, I, you know, good Lord, typical, you know, you're 18, you're, you're dumb you know people well you it, yeah that's what i was and... just about to say for like for a younger kid i remember i mean i joined at 21 dude somebody was like hey here's 2300 bucks i'd be like where am i going like right, what, what am right. i what am i i'll, I'll do anything for 2300 dollars back then like for it's, sure it's I, a know, lot of money that's a part goes you didn't go slap that down on like a new 2018 charger with like 30 percent interest did you no 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 i did not. bmw I, 3 series i oh, didn't okay. heed a lot of advice everybody got uh infinities that was a big thing everybody would get an oh. infinity and I oh like, interesting I, I don't know why or Maybe obviously that's a marine a thing. could have been could have yeah. could have been it was crazy you know it's like i imagine now I just like now it's probably a kid pulling up in a Tesla. You know what I mean? And it's like, what the hell? Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. What a weird thought, actually. You imagine some E3 pulling up in a Tesla to his first command. I never even bigger flex than a lot of things. I feel like for sure. Big time. Bigger than the Mustang, I think. But, you know, the Mustang is ubiquitous. You got to do it. You know, they don't. uh... Never had one. (laughs) Unfortunately, I I regret it. I should have. You don't regret it. I know that. I don't. I don't actually regret it at all. <laughs> I uh, I drive way too, I think, aggressively to have a fast car. It's just not a good idea for me. You know, forget the other people on the road just for me. I'm going to crash it. You know, there's no yeah, way I'm not yeah. going to. So dodge that. You know, me didn't listen to a lot of other advice along the way. Um, some of which some of which was, you know, you should get a job that makes you uh use your brain instead of your body. Cause your, your brain is going to hold up a lot longer than your body. And I was like, yeah, okay, sure. I'm gonna go be a rifleman, you know, nice. Try. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So didn't do much with that 20. It might not even been 2,300. It might've been like 18 or something. It was like obnoxiously low. I was like, there's just no way that that's how it's supposed to work, but okay. And so spent that you know, plane ticket home and like a, like a bracelet for my girlfriend. And I think that was it. Um, was and... this the one that the teenage heartbreak that you joined to no. fight or <laughs> no, this no, is a no. new one? This was later. This was a, this was a new one. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, you know, I, I think I had like an attachment issue and I was afraid of being alone and whatnot, very insecure. And so I think that kind of led to me latching on to these long-term relationships that weren't incredibly healthy for me, particularly while I was in the Marine Corps. Um, so it was like one of my ways of coping with being far away and kind of um, dealing with adjustment and whatnot. Um, so, and, you know, just making things more stressful for myself, because why not? 
You know, right, just spice yeah. it up a little bit. Oh, like, yeah, add a little razzle-dazzle. <laughs> Some money issues thrown in there, you know. We're Being just, a... all we need is the charger and we're set. Right. Like, <laughs> right, right, like, why not get married and live on base and just crank things up to a thousand if you can. Oh, man, you know? I love it. So, I love it. Yeah, it's like being a being a new guy in the infantry unit especially i mean i'm sure it's hard anytime but in the middle of the war was it's it's a it's a crazy place the barracks was absolutely terrifying my first night there was a there was a senior corporal named taylor also and he found out that i was taylor and he found out where i lived that we were in the same company and him and a bunch of other dudes came they're banging on my door at like midnight my first night in the barracks and they're drunk as shit and I hear him screaming, are you Taylor too? Are you Taylor too? And I was like, yes. <laughs> and uh, one of the other guys was like, close the fucking door and lock it and don't come out. And I was like, okay. And that was my introduction into the barracks. And it didn't get less scary over time. Almost like it's prison. Like what the it hell are they doing my, over there? The welcoming my mom, committee. <laughs> my mom and dad um, picked me up and took me out for dinner. My, my like first night after infantry school and in the barracks. And that is what my mom said. She said, I feel like this is a prison yard. I, I don't think I'm going to see you again. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, yeah, it, I believe me. I'm terrified. It was, it was fucking scary. Um, wow. And they had just gotten back from a crazy deployment and it was, it was, it was terrifying. So, you know, long-term attachment helped to deal with that a little bit. I think <laughs> <laughs> some kind you know, of a source of comfort, a, a little for a time, you know? Um, so I forget where I'm going with this, uh, but there I was, you know, new guy in the Marine Corps, you know, stressing myself out, making things difficult, but I loved it, loved every second of it. We went to the field all the time. Our leadership, it was tough. You know, we, we trained super hard. I'm sure now it would probably be re like referred to as hazing, but I didn't think it was bad. Like no one ever like beat the shit out of me or, or peed on me while I did push-ups, which did happen. Um, not to me or anyone in my squad, but, you know, elsewhere in the barracks, um, you know, I never had any issues like that. It always seemed like the training that we were doing is for a reason. And if you drop your rifle, you should do push-ups. And if you can't remember how to call in a medevac, then you should do flutter kicks until you can remember. Um, because when it gets sure, down to help. it, yeah, I'm telling you, really, really, uh, gets that memory wheel turning. And, uh, you know, I, I had a really great time. We had phenomenal leadership from the team leader and squad leader level all the way up to the battalion commander, who was an absolute salt dog. He's actually in the OEF Nation TBT book, if you want to check it out, J.D. Harrell. There's, like, shows on him on the History Channel, too. Just an absolute badass. Um, and it was the shit, you know, it was, like, motivating. And it, I was like, this is it. Like, I found my place. Um I love shooting stuff. I love blowing stuff up. I love um, being a, like, I got to be a team leader in one of our, you know, deployment trainings. And I was like, this is it yeah. for me. You know what I mean? Being able to lead yeah, yeah. and to push people around and yell and scream and get things done and be aggressive and violent. And it just, <laughs> while also, you know, remaining incredibly thoughtful and aware. And um, there's a lot of processes that go into everything. You have to coordinate everything with a ton of adjacent assets and higher assets and whatever. And um, to be in that zone and in that realm was just like the coolest shit in the world. I felt like I was peaking. You know what I mean? Like, this is it. This is the pinnacle of everything. This is awesome. This is everything I wanted it to be. Um, and yes, it sucks. And, you know, 
we're outside all the time. We hump far as shit. We sleep in the woods. We never bring tents for reasons I don't understand. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's miserable. It's wet. It's disgusting. It's sweaty. It's, it's intense, you know, but it's fun. It, it, it was such a unique and uh, like unifying thing to do with your friends. And the, my, my boys that I made friends with at that time when I was a boot are my best friends today. Um, and you know, I, I think that that really speaks to how much of a, how much of an impact that had on me, not just then, but you know, now too. Um, and after that, things took a turn and, and then yeah. we deployed and the deployment was sick. I got to be in charge again. Um, but it was also brutal and, and, um, annoying and, and a lot of, childish things that went on and people making us do dumb shit that was dangerous for no reason um kind of st started to sort of like you know wedge itself into my brain that maybe this is you know not the greatest thing in the world or maybe this isn't the greatest way to do these things um and then second deployment had shit leadership from you know head to toe um had really good friends and um was able to be a squad leader which was sick because you know we go out on patrol and i'm in charge and everything is mine and um, it's a lot of responsibility, but for me, it was awesome. And I had complete faith and trust in my lieutenant who had the same for me. And that allowed me to do more than others and go further and, and um, kind of push the boundaries of our mission. And I, that was awesome. And to be able to take my guys out and get them at least like a taste of the war as at the time it was wrapping up or we thought it was wrapping up. Um, certainly the Marine Corps infantry mission in Afghanistan, you know what I mean? To go from the peak of it in 2011 to um the, the big withdrawal in 2013 it was cool to be a part of super disappointing for me um because I, I, I wanted to keep deploying um but the leadership from our battalion commander down was god awful so that's when I decided I wasn't gonna stay in and then I didn't really like stupid people being in charge of me especially when you know you're talking about the ultimate life and death job um to be a squad leader at war so uh that's when I was like, yeah, I'm probably going to go to school and, and, you know, fuck around for the rest of my life, I think. What, the, what kind of things were happening, you started mentioning on your first deployment, <clears throat> you weren't really agreeing with some of the decisions that were being made. What kinds of things were being done and executed that were maybe different than Expectations. being out, being outside in training? And, you know, is, was it just the closeness, the proximity to the war? Uh, what made that different? So the war itself was, you know, by far my favorite part. I mean, being, you know, so I should like probably break it down, but we were in Sangin, Afghanistan, which was like, a, like at the time, the place to be, you know, obviously like a ton of IDs, lots of casualties, you know, three foot, we attached to three, five uh, midway through their deployment to Sangin and they, you know, they got hit pretty hard, but they were, you know, doing the Lord's work and, and dropping Taliban. Like it was cool. Um, and you know midway through the deployment one five came on deck and we we my company attached detached from three five and attached to one five so we stayed in sang and stayed in our you know ao and um continued to do what we had been doing all along um which was you know every day we we go out on a security patrol and we um try to build connections with the locals and um build confidence in our partnered indigenous forces and uh you know Ultimately, it comes down to trying to find IDs and trying to provoke the Taliban into attacking us so that we can, you know, hopefully dump some of the stuff we're carrying and, and get some rounds off, which would be sick. Um, so 
Um, we had a platoon sergeant who was a tyrant and he was very good at what he did, which was, he was tactically probably the most proficient person that there was in our unit. Like he just, he always knew what we needed to do. Always knew what the answer was, um, knew his job and everybody else's job at all times, but he was an asshole. And so a lot of, I think, insecurities that turn themselves into, um, you know, him belittling and kind of torturing us. So my, my squad stayed at a super small outpost, uh, which is just our squad. And then about 10 Afghan army guys living with us. Um, and it's just this little tiny Afghan compound with three rooms and a tent in the middle of the compound. And, you know, the compound is like a, a rectangle with walls that go all the way around and on an L shaped portion of the rectangle, the walls have, um, like a building attached to it. And on the roof, we have two sandbag bunkers, one for us and one for the ANA. Um, so we were like isolated. We weren't on the main, you know, supply route. Um, and so we were often overlooked on resupply runs and they would forget to bring us water, forget to bring us chow um, on occasion. Wow. Yeah, it was kind of crazy. That's, so, that sucks. Holy shit. It was funny. I mean, like for us, it was just like whatever. We <laughs> it was really funny. <laughs> it was uh, the, the because so because of how bad the IEDs were, the AO was like small in comparison to where it was in central and, and southern Hellman for my unit on their deployment previously. You know, our AO was not a large space, like it was a few square kilometers, and that was it. Because, and for and for the listeners of the podcast, a when you say AO, you mean area of operation, yep, yep. okay, perfect, and so. Um, pretty much the, the OPs had the OPs, the outposts had to be, um, like you had to be able to see them from each other. So like, it couldn't be completely isolated out there in the middle of nowhere, or anytime we try to do a resupply, there'll be IDs on the route. So we were like adjacent to an OP that was actually along the route, but for whatever reason, because you had to cross a bridge to get to ours, they would drive past all the time. So, uh, we would have to hump to the platoon patrol base or pv um where the rest of our platoon was and the platoon attachments and they had a generator and a semblance of electricity to run the radios and everything like that um and eventually they got like a bigger generator and they got a tent with ac which was you know unheard of um because we didn't have power <laughs> at our op uh so we'd have to hump to the op to get what we needed and then hump back to our op and it like doesn't sound like a lot because it's just like well you're just walking to you know pick up stuff but the problem is that you're walking through ied ied laced fields where people you know the, the taliban are constantly you know not really trying to get in a big firefight with us but harassing fire for sure um somewhat constantly and um walking through these fields a lot of times we would just do it at night even though we weren't supposed to be out at night because of the ieds um because the way should have been clear so we'd go at night but uh, it's muddy as shit and everything's wet. And so you'd be slipping and falling and picking up, you know, upwards of a hundred pounds of supplies and then walking back to the OP was exhausting. Um, and so the platoon sergeant would use that to kind of try to punish us. And so if someone did something that he didn't like, which, you know, there were times when it was like justifiable when one of the guys forgot his NBGs and we went on a three day operation, of course, we're like, he should be punished, but he punishes the entire squad. And, you know, it's like, we're in a, an active you know, war zone. People get hurt every day out here. The medevac helicopters come pretty much every single day. 
Um, we're finding new IDs every single day. Uh, so to be like making people do this under these conditions is just kind of absurd. Um, yeah. And very small minded. Yeah. Uh, well, and it seems like there's, I would hope that there would be a different type of mentality and something that I saw while deployed. It's, it's, it should be a different environment and the, the rules kind of should change when it comes to like how you're dealing with punishment. And I, I can't even imagine that they're like putting you in extra harm as a punishment almost when yeah that seems wrong. Yeah. And so um, another one of the like common punishments was if somebody's, you know, fucking up or not doing their job well, we'd put them on post. And eventually one of the squad leaders was like, look, like, you know, I get it but you got to come up with a better way of punishing people. If you're putting people on post who don't care and don't want to be here, they're not going to pay attention and somebody's going to get hurt, you know, they're right, going right. to in place IEDs or, you know, eventually they, you know, they shot RPGs at the post because the person on post isn't paying attention. And um, you shouldn't have to have these conversations when you're like there, you know what I mean? This is, we are at war. This is it. This is a real deal. Um, and we're just kind of fucking around about it. And that was really, disillusioning i think for me and, mm -hmm. and i didn't really i didn't like that a lot to put well, it lightly it, it kind of gives you the sense from uh from what it sounds like like he, he didn't care about like you guys didn't feel like he had your back at all which it, and i mean if he's putting you in harm's way obviously he doesn't and that's such a big portion of being a good leader, whether that's in the civilian world or, and especially in the military world, as we all know, like if you, if your leader or manager or whatever you want to call it has your back, you're going to work infinitely harder for them to make sure that the job gets done. And that's just basic human nature, right? So if, if your leader doesn't have your back, you're like, fuck you. Like, I don't, I don't need, like, you don't care about me. So why am I going to care about getting this job done for you? You know what I mean? For sure. And I mean, the thing is like, this is a hundred percent true, but <clears throat> band of brothers, right. They all talk about the, the captain in the beginning. That's the company commander, um, Lieutenant Sobel and what an asshole he is. And they all hate him, but because of how much he's a dick, it's very unifying for the company and for the platoons because you're, yeah kind of building this resiliency and this um, camaraderie and, and spirit of teamwork because of how much of a dick he is, but also because he's a perfectionist, your guys are very tactically proficient. You're, you're very yeah. sound in your decision-making <clears throat> understand everyone's role and where they need to be and how the machine needs to function in order to function properly um, and how we all fit into the machine. And I think that is something that we got from him a lot was he was an asshole, but anytime he gave you any kind of praise, it was like, you felt like a King. Like you were like, he doesn't just pass out praise lightly. You know what I mean? It's like, this is, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it, it was very much like yeah. a love hate relationship. It still is. I think. Um, well, that's yeah. Like the opposite way of, I guess, looking at, at what I just said, you know, there's, that's the, that's the flip side of the coin is that everybody comes together because he is an asshole and you kind of build up this mentality of trying to earn that praise because you know, like you said, he doesn't give it out often. So when you get it, it, it must feel good. I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, so, you know, it, it was, it was interesting. I mean, I, I loved it. Like being outside the wire every day, um, 
I like being for like I I was the point man, so I went first. And um, one of the things that we did, we would probe with bayonets, so we would get down on our knees and stick the bayonets into the ground and find try to find um, you know IED components, so that way you could find the pressure plate before somebody steps on it, and then have the engineer or EOD blow it up. Um, and so that was a cool thing to experience. It was a terrifying thing to be told that that's what you have to do. Um, but once we started doing it, it was like, this is it, you know what I mean? Like, and when you find IEDs, it's like, holy shit, you know what I mean? I, I did it. Like, well, I'm that's how, did it, you, you know? find one? Did I, I assume oh, yeah. you guys, yeah, you found, we found a bunch a lot, or we, what? we found a lot. We found a lot. I think I only found three. Um, I found more components that weren't quite put together yet. Um, but I only like physically found three. Um, but, uh, one of my buddies found, I think upwards of 15. Um, and wow. I mean, and this is in the beginning, the first three months, if we even thought there was something, <laughs> we would throw a line charge, which is like a, a three foot section of deck cord, um, with bits of C4 strung through it. Um, and we would throw it down a path and set it off to make a sympathetic detonation to, you know, blow up the ID. When we first got there, that was like our SOP was if you think there's something there, then we're just going to throw a line charge on it. That way we can be sure, um, which is incredibly destructive and probably not great for your hearing and for your equilibrium long-term. But at the time it was sick. I mean, we were blowing stuff right. up every day um, <laughs> and finding IDs, you know, pretty much every day as well. Little boy's dream. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, blowing shit up. It was, it was awesome. I mean, it was sick. It was everything that you want it to be. I mean, like, I think I probably would have preferred getting into more firefights for sure, as opposed to just the ID threat. Cause the ID threat is, is terrifying and you don't really get any, you don't get to payback. You don't get to dish it back out. You know, if you're lucky enough to catch them while they're in placing, sure. But that's hard, you know, very yeah. rare. There's so much air on station and they're really smart about it. Um, the likelihood of you catching them while like us catching them while we were there, since we weren't allowed out at night, it just wasn't, um, the likelihood just wasn't very high. So you didn't really get to kind of push back to these things that they're pushing on you. And, and that's kind of a bummer, but you know, it, it feels good to have been at least doing this thing and being proactive and trying to make a difference, you know? It sounds like you totally were. And I, I imagine that actually finding an ID is probably a huge praise. I mean, that's like a huge accomplishment when you come back to your unit or whatever. My question about that is how does that play into like something that you do now like being told that you need to say hey put this bayonet into the sand and look for something that might blow you up to me I have to think that like going forward the rest of my life there's not going to be anything that I would be scared to do because <laughs> that that literally is the pinnacle of like yeah you really have it on the line and like something you think of like a bomb tech, like they're diffusing it at the last minute. Like there is something like that. Like, does that impact things that you do now? Or do you feel like things are, the volume is turned down on them when you go to like tackle something new or a new project or a new job, or do you feel that at all? Uh, if I'm honest with you, no, I, <clears throat> I'm scared of heights. I hate roller coasters. You know, my wife loves going on roller coasters and I'm just like, fuck that. <laughs> like I can't <laughs> deal with the anxiety of sitting there waiting to go and just being like, man, I don't want this. I get vertigo now when I go on swings. You know what I mean? It's crazy. I like, oh, I'm right. such a, 
uh, I guess soft now, but, um, but realistically, like those like uh, real actual harm, it doesn't, I don't find those things to be scary. I just don't like heights. You know what I mean? I don't like heights. I get vertigo. You know, I've, I've been around a few explosions. So I think, you know, my brain got a little bit jumbled up and, you know, I think that's had an effect on me having vertigo. Um, and, um, I think I like the way you put it, tackling new stuff. It's like, I don't care. I, I, it doesn't bother me. It's like, uh, school, you know, I I got comfortable with being uncomfortable and with, um, kind of willing myself to get out of my comfort zone because that's really all it was, was getting out of my comfort zone. You know, you're fine with getting shot at and shooting back and you're fine with calling in air and calling in mortars and calling in medevacs. And you're fine with, um, you know, being the one to make the patrol routes that ultimately are going to determine whether we're going to find an IED or possibly step on one, you know, depending on how this patrol route goes. Um, you know, I, it never bothered me when there was the the big thing with the green on blue in Afghanistan with Afghan army and Afghan like police shooting Marines and soldiers and sailors and airmen in the back and stuff like that. It was never, I never, it never bothered me. I never had a problem with that. I thought that, those things largely came about because people didn't treat them the way that they should be treated. And that in my experience, when you worked with the ANA and you, you developed a bond with them and you work closely with them, they want to help and they want to be on your side. And, and, you know, yeah, it's crazy that you should have to convince them of that, but it's also, we don't understand the war from their terms and in, in their eyes and what we're doing can easily be construed as shitty, you know, kicking people's doors and rifling through their shit in their house you know, I don't know what's offensive. It's obviously offensive. Imagine if somebody did that to your parents' house, you'd be fucking pissed, you know? Yeah, and yeah, yeah. So <laughs> for the me- The whole kicking the door in thing, that doesn't really bode well in any country. Yeah, for some yeah. reason, there's like, they're like, oh, it's a cultural thing. It's like, I don't think there's too many cultures that are like, yeah, you know what, have at it, brother. So. Yeah, boot it in. That's fine. Like, can't you knock? I mean- <laughs> Right, right. So <laughs> like it's a like, simple doorbell ring. Um, I think- it made me, it helped me kind of put things into perspective and to understand that like, while, you know, these things can appear intimidating and, and scary and terrifying and, you know, obviously harmful too. Um, the reality is that with a professional approach and with, by staying calm and kind of taking a deep breath and approaching this the way that you've been trained to approach it, that you can, you can handle this and that you need to handle this and that in the grand scheme of things, you know, um, fuck it would suck if this thing blows up and you get you know your hands arms face blown off like it'd be a bummer for sure but it's your job somebody's got to do it and you're gonna feel a lot worse if you don't do this and somebody else gets their legs blown off and it's your fault so you better get after it you know you're gonna feel a lot worse about um you know for me personally flunking out of school and, and not being able to do these things and for me being in college it was an adjustment i had a really hard time at first um I was on academic probation. And then the semester that I figured it out, I was on academic probation, figured out what I wanted to do. And I got straight edge the rest of the time that I was in college because ultimately like nothing compares to that. And it can be easy to be like, I don't have to work hard because nothing compares to that. What can you say to me? Because nothing compares to that. I did these things. I'm a badass. I, you know, I made it. I did my time, blah, blah, blah. Any number of bumper stickers, you know what I mean? whatever you've seen them like if you've been on base you can see them from a mile away motivated bumper stickers 
I can say that, right, sure, but that doesn't help me. That doesn't get me anywhere. That doesn't take me where I want to go. That doesn't jive with my plans for my future, which is to make something of myself, which is to turn these sacrifices that people made for me, that people who I was with when we were deployed made, you know, ultimately the way that I, I look at things is, you know, if someone else stepped on the IED, it's one less that you didn't have to step on. And that sucks, right? That's a shitty kind of thing to have to think about. But I think it's the truth. And so you owe it to these guys who sacrificed for you to make something of yourself and to put yourself in a position where you can tell their story and you can tell your own story. And you can use that to kind of try to channel some positive change in the world and positive change in the way we look at veterans and the way that veterans look at themselves. There are so many people that get out and it's, I almost make it akin to like people when they talk about how great of an athlete they were in high school, like that, that high school was like the peak or whatever. And I think the military has this way of really turning your life upside down. And so it feels like really transformational and like, you've done all these really important things, but getting out, it's good to acknowledge those, but that doesn't it doesn't give you license to just coast or whatever through right. through the, anything the rest of life. For sure. I agree. I think <clears throat> it's kind of like this. And this is something that me and my wife have talked about. You know, we come from the same area um, and the city that she's from, which is where I went to high school, is is, is pretty bad. You know, it's, it's terrible. It's a violent place. Um, people get stuck. You know what I mean? And it's this small town mentality. It's this, well, I'm balling right now, even though I'm living in a rundown apartment and I'm working a dead end job and I am in in an abusive relationship with a piece of shit. You know, it's this small town mentality. Well, he was the high school quarterback. (laughs) Like who cares? Right. Right. Yeah. Nobody knows who he is. Yeah. And I think you see that in the military because it is very much this like small town, you know, everybody in my unit knows who I am and knows I'm the man and that I'm good at my job. And I have this reputation and this respect and that feels great. And you get out and you're stripped of that. No one knows who you are. No one cares what you did you know yeah they're great things and yeah it's a meaningful thing for sure but <clears throat> you know you get out even if you do 20 if you join when you're 18 you're 38 years old man you have your entire life ahead of you you got to get something going you know and it's a worthy career choice for sure and it's not to knock anybody or to discourage someone from making it their career but you know the the job doesn't make you doesn't make the man doesn't make the woman doesn't make the person you know it's a job right and it is a commitment and it's bigger than your average nine to five for sure absolutely but there's more to life than this you know what i mean you get back and you got to keep working you know Mm -hmm. you didn't earn the right to to coast you know with the exception of you know our, our our glorious wounded and dead you don't get to hang the cleats up and and call it a career you know what i mean you got to keep driving. You got to keep pushing. You got to provide for your family. You need to provide a positive example for your community and show people that, Hey, you know, yeah, I came from this shitty area, but look what the military did for me. You know, look how it empowered me. I'm not the, you know, uh, most satisfied person with how things turned out with my military career. I love what I did. I love the people I worked with. I'm proud of what I did and what I accomplished, but I had some real issues with, um, the organization as a whole and the people that were in charge and this kind of mentality that pervades it. And that's okay. You know what I mean? That's all right. And that doesn't mean that the organization sucks. It doesn't mean that the people suck. It's just humanity, right? 
humans are gonna fuck stuff up that's what we do that's what we are good at that's free will baby you know what i mean that's what we do and and that's okay right but you got to keep pushing and you got to let these things enable and empower you instead of you know hanging your coattails and and saying you know i don't need to do anything i i did this i did this great thing i saved someone's life i called in this medevac i found this ied i whatever you know what i mean i I smoked an ied and placing team what have you right i didn't that's none of that's me i'm just saying like i'm generalizing which is bad but yeah, sure sure but, yeah yeah you know you gotta keep pushing right there's more to it there's there's more to it and the more you you push and strive and kind of try to rationalize these things with yourself the more you like unlock you know what i mean it's a a video game and you're finding new levels and new codes and new development things for your character to find that there's more to it and there's more to experience and life is a big and beautiful and wonderful thing but it takes work you know you don't just because just because you were a track champ in high school doesn't mean that that's going to provide you with a pathway to success in the future just because you were all state at wrestling in high school doesn't mean you're going to be great at the military you know what i mean like you have to work you have to put in the time you have to put in the effort and it's easy to to kind of blame things on on a on a adverse situation or an adverse thing that you've been through or you know something shitty happening in the military shitty leadership oh i got fucked i got fucked we all get fucked i mean that's kind of the way it goes either you're fucking or you're getting fucked i mean that's that's life <laughs> you know what i mean and so you need to try to rationalize these things and it took me a long time and it took a lot of help and you know finally I'm, I'm in a position where it's beginning to pay off but that doesn't mean that I, I stop and that I you know take the training wheels off and coast downhill you know what I mean like no way I'm, I'm still pushing as far as I'm concerned it's still an uphill fight and I'm in it to win it you know what I mean I'm, I'm doing what I have to do I'm making the sacrifices I have to make and it's very personal Nothing in the military is personal. You know what I mean? Even when it's this one-on-one thing and your commander despises you or whatever, it's the organization. You know what I mean? The organization breeds these leaders or they breed these mentalities and you have to deal with it. And it should make you feel good and make you feel strong that you came out of that and that you were able to accomplish things under such conditions. You know, you went to war, you went on deployment, you, you put in the time, you put in the effort, don't let it be for nothing. You know, you got a medal. That's awesome, right? But the fuck does it mean? You know. Can we can we talk for a second about how it seems like every wrestler you ever meet is an all-state wrestler? (laughs) Every single time, like without every oh, without fail. Like, how many states are there? I think I've met seven thousand all-state wrestlers. I have to have, and they're seventy of them were from my school. Like. not actually places it's just kind of this level and everybody's one correct yeah yeah. you know like like if you wrestled you were indeed all state (laughs) you gotta hope it's kind of like faded out a bit because now it's like i'll just google it man you know oh yeah right yeah you could get away with it before about you know let me just look it up yeah you know weird i don't see you on here they didn't mention you in this one yeah that's so funny I think that what you said about um, trying to, you almost need to use your military time in as like a stepping stone. It doesn't need to be this thing that you dwell on. It's part of your past. You've learned and you've done all of these things and it should help you build the foundation for what's next. 
um, just like the, the high school, the wrestling thing, like anything from your past can quickly become something that sets the tone and defines you for the rest of your life, but it shouldn't be that way. You always want to continue to be improving and to do that, it has to be a stepping stone and not something that's like, this is going to be me from now until forever. For well, sure. I th- when I, when I first got out and I was kind of struggling with, with what I wanted to do and where I wanted to go. One quote, I think that, that like really hits home for me or, or changed my life was where you're at right now is not your whole book. It might not even be a chapter in your, in the book of your life. It may just be a single page. Like, so your military career is a chapter or two chapters of your life. It's not your whole damn book, you know, like keep writing your book, keep moving on. You know, that, that I heard that when I first got out and I was like, Oh yeah. Okay. We're good. Let's keep moving. Like, you know, was that a Dr. Seuss? It was actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. The great Throw that on a tattoo. Come on. Yeah. I, I have it. I have it tatted across my chest. I'd, I'd show you, but it might make things weird. <laughs> Might be submitting to this to OnlyFans if we're doing that. Correct. There yeah, yeah. Link will be down below. <laughs> um, Caleb, so I or we know this a little bit about your story, but we want to kind of like wrap up the time of your time in the military in the Marines, but lead into something that happened this year. You have talked at length publicly about your interpreter. And do you want to kind of give us the rundown and the backstory on that? For sure. Yeah. So <clears throat> my interpreter, NB, um, he was my interpreter on my first deployment in Sangin uh, back in 2011. Uh, I think he came to us in, in March of 2011 and stayed with us until August uh, when we rotated home. Um, NB was, he's actually like the same age as me, he's just a couple months older than me. Um, we had a really funny relationship with NB. Uh, he had a bit of an adjustment period. Uh, when he first got there, his Pashto wasn't that great, and his English wasn't that great either. But he spoke really good Dari, which in Helmand isn't the most helpful thing in the world. But he could talk to the, <laughs> to the he could talk to the Afghan army guys, which was helpful because prior to that, I, they were our best friends at this point because of advice given us by the unit that we were ripping out with. Um, they were like, you know, you should make friends with them. You know, you, these people worry about getting shot by the ANA. All you have to do is make friends with them and you'll be fine. And so we were best friends with these guys. We couldn't talk to each other. Not really. Like it was all pointy talky. You know what I mean? Like they, one of the sergeants spoke a little bit of English and that was it. You know, none of us spoke any more than what's your name? How are you? Hi, my name is, and that's it. Um, and so we, we had this relationship with these guys, but until NB got there, we couldn't actually talk to them. So once NB got there, you know, it like opened up this whole new thing for us. And we had these, they were, our, they were, we were so tight with those guys. It's always like such a bummer when you hear people talk shit about them because yeah, like they were not to the professional standards of the American military. No shit. You know what I mean? Of course they weren't, but you wouldn't be uh, there if they were. Right. 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 right <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. We would, right? Would, this wouldn't make any sense if they were. Yes. You know? So, yeah. um, but um, digressing a little bit, but NB, helped us really connect with the the people because up to that point um most of the people had left the fighting was really bad over the winter time um and there were like a handful of civilian casualties so the people left um there was it was a ghost town when we got there and then around march um 
as it began to turn into spring and started to warm up and um, things started to grow, people started showing up. And now there's like a ton of people and it's like a full, it's this humongous village and there's, you know, hundreds of families and stuff. And so NB allowed us to go through and do census operations. So we know who lives where and we can kind of start to weed out um, when new people come in and, and where they're coming from and, and start to build like a informant network and all this stuff and allowed us to stay ahead and, and kind of disrupt these IED building teams and whatnot. Um, and, you know, he, he, he was super helpful. We couldn't have done the job that we did without him. And I think we did have, an, uh, I think, a noticeable impact on our AO. I'm 100% positive it went to shit as soon as we left. But, and, I mean, it was never a question in my mind of whether Sangin was going to get, whether the Taliban were going to win Sangin. It was like, of course they are, Jesus Christ. You know, we're holding on. We're, we are holding on. But as soon as we leave, we know what's going to happen. But um, NB was pivotal in that success. Um, and, you know, he, he sacrificed everything to be there, right? Like, he couldn't use his real name. Um, the Taliban, he was marked as soon as he came there, right? The Taliban back in the village, you know, I think we, me especially, underestimated how much of a network this is and how there's Taliban here that are going to call Taliban from your home province and they're going to find Taliban in your home village and be like, yeah, you know this guy, this name? Yeah, he, his parents live over here. Okay, let's go leave a night letter on their door. You know what I mean? It's this very real thing that happened all over the place. Um, so NB stayed on in Sangin for a couple months and then he went to Kandahar with a, with an, a couple army units and then went back to Herat and worked with another army unit in Herat. Um, and I think in 2015, he, he tried putting in his SIV packet and it got shot down. And at the time he couldn't appeal. Um, and throughout all this time, me and NB and all of my squad and friends were all friends on Facebook. And so we talked to NB throughout this whole process and, you know, he's kind of telling us what's going on and giving us the updates. And at the time, you know, I didn't really think anything of it. The war was still going on. It wasn't a, a given that the Taliban were going to win the whole thing. And obviously we were still there. So it wasn't like, uh, didn't seem like a big rush. He didn't seem that concerned about it. Um, so he joined the uh, Afghan Air Force and went to school at the Air Force University in, in Kabul and, and got some kind of degree in, in management um, and was a first lieutenant in the Air Force. And I think he's like, he was like a logistics officer. He says engineer. Um, and I think that they're just applying the term engineer, um, meaning that he's educated and, and has a degree. Um, so, but from what it sounds like, he was the logistics officer for um, a helicopter unit that covered a couple of provinces. Um, so he did that for five years or uh, four years. Um, he got married, I think in 2016. Um, and his wife, uh, she was in med school at the time. She was in her last semester of her residency at a hospital in Herat when, at, when the government fell. Um, and so he reached out to me last year and all of 2020, you know, we were, we tried this, the same campaign that we tried this year and reaching out to senators and congressmen and um, anybody that could try to help. And we got, you know, zero assistance, of course, and no one cared. The government wasn't falling. Um, people just kind of paid us lip service. Excuse me. And um, that was about it. So this year, January, I was like, all right, you know, things are looking grim. He's hitting me up, telling me what's happening. I'm watching the videos on Instagram and I'm like, okay, I know they're close to his airbase. He can no longer drive into work. He has to take a, he has to take a helo to get to work. 
So things are getting dark and his wife's really worried. They had a baby December 30th last year. Um, so we start reaching out. We start emailing senators and congressmen. Um, we talked to Senator Bob Menendez from New Jersey who looked into his case. I'm not sure how many times they didn't actually do anything, but they looked into it. Cory Booker sent me an email, obviously a pre-written one that he didn't look at um, saying that he's sorry he couldn't help, but he's proud of all the work that he's doing to get Afghans that are in danger to the U S of course. Right. And so I was like, all right, you know, fuck me. Right. So, um, yeah. So then I go on Instagram and, and my buddy, has a nonprofit and he was like, what you got to do is you got to record a video of you talking and upload it and ask people to share it. And so that's what I do. And OAF Nation thankfully shares it. We get a ton, we get thousands of views. I have tons and tons of people reaching out to me who are emailing their senators and congressmen who maybe aren't doing more, but they're at least asking questions. Like they're actually asking me questions and I'm like, awesome. You know, we're, we're making progress. We're getting somewhere. Um, NB, worked for a subcontractor of the giant contractor, Amentum. He doesn't know that. So he's not asking the right questions. He's not telling them the right things. So they can't find his paperwork. This guy, Stephen Prince, reaches out to me. He follows OEF and he hit me up and he was like, yo, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I work in finance in Manhattan. I'm well-connected. What can I do? And I was like, this is what we got. And he's like, all right, I'm going to make some calls. A few days later, I get a call from the VP of HR for Amentum, which is this, you know, there's a giant multinational corporation at like six o'clock on a Tuesday. And she's like, hey, uh, what's your guy's name? And I was like, he worked for this company. I think it's a subcontract. She's like, oh, yeah, okay, here it is. I'll send it over. And that was that. We got his paperwork because at that point, his SIV was still pending appeal. And it was waiting on that one document. Waiting on that one document. And then he. And she found it like instantly. Is that what you're saying? Pretty much. Wow. Yeah, so I pretty much just about yeah. So yeah, like a day or two. My other my other interpreter from that deployment was like, yeah, he fucked up. He should have known that. He should have said that. He should have led with that. It, this would be over. Um, but that was just part of it, right? Getting the SIV was just part of it because they're in Herat, and so we do this fundraising thing because they got to get to Kabul. I talked to this journalist, Jonathan Landay. He works for Reuters. He's been covering Afghanistan, been in and out of Afghanistan since the Soviets invaded. Super cool dude incredibly helpful was like hey you need to tell your guy he needs to get out of Herat now he needs to get to Kabul now because if he doesn't get on a flight out he's not getting out and so we're like shit okay how do we do that and he's like oh if you can transfer me like a thousand dollars we'll be all right I'm like okay you know I'll post a thing if I have to get if I have to use a thousand dollars I have to use a thousand dollars but I have a ton of friends that I know want to help that know NB that know people that know of NB that want to help so I'll make this post we make the post we raise ten thousand dollars and I'm like, dude, we got the money. What do we do? He's like, you just got to transfer through Western Union. Western Union shuts down because the Taliban are taking over and they don't want the Taliban to get money off the transfers. So we can't get him money. He somehow borrows money and gets bus tickets or borrows bus tickets from a friend and they get to Kabul. They get to Kabul and they go, I'm like, go to the airport. You know, and this is when I start getting added to a ton of signal chats, one of which is with the U.S. Military Academy graduates who are all high-ranking officers or, you know, now veterans who were officers who are super well-connected and they're all, you know, doing God's work to get their interpreters out, which is phenomenal, right? But as an enlisted Marine rifleman, nobody gives a fuck about my interpreter. No one cares. He's not a government official. He's not a minister. He didn't work for anybody important. 
no one cares about this dude at all. And at the airport, you have to know someone. You have to get them in. In order to get them in, they have to know someone. We helped my other interpreter, my friend Kevin Ryan, got his mother and his sisters in because our interpreter had a friend who was working as an interpreter with the Marines, gave his phone to one of the Marines, and my buddy Ryan said, hey, you know, these are, these are my interpreter's friends from when we were together in Sangin. Can you let them in? They can't get through the line because they're women and the Taliban are beating them. And so the Marines went and got them and brought them in. And so we were like, okay, that's what we got to do. But now we don't have the contacts on the ground. So we're able to get them some money so that they can pay for food and lodging in Kabul because my interpreter has a friend who's got a British bank account. So we PayPal him some money and he's like, okay, we're good. And it takes like three more days. The next day they go, can't get in, get turned away, go home. Next day they go and they're in the canal and I get added to this uh, Marine chat, right? And it's all enlisted Marines who are in Afghanistan with two, three, I think second battalion, third Marines. Um, and a buddy of mine, Jared Garland, who was a squad leader with me in 2013 was like, Hey, you know, our, one of our friends is the gunny on the ground at the airport right now. So we're, he's in Kabul, his family, his wife and his daughter are with him. Actually his, his brother's with him too. We didn't know that until the last day, but so the second day they're there, they go out and they try to get in they can't, they come back. And so there's all this chatter about what gate to go to and um, what time to get there, where the Taliban checkpoints are. There's all this like satellite imagery and it's like, it's helpful, but it's overwhelming, right? You're getting all these messages. This one officer in the, in the military academy chat is freaking out because she was on the phone with her friend and then there were gunshots and now she thinks they're all dead. And I'm like, she's an American citizen. The Taliban aren't executing American citizens at the gate of the airport. You know what I mean? Like get fucking real. Like let's, let's take a fucking chill pill. You're freaking everybody out. You know, you're supposed to be right. an officer, right? Like grow the fuck up. But you know, they don't leave a wire. So they don't know anything. What can you do? Uh, but so uh, the second day, my friend, Joe Pendergast, who was my corpsman, uh, on my first appointment, uh, goddamn hero ran into a minefield to save an EOD tech who had gotten his leg blown off by an IED. Watched him do it. Ran right into this cloud. Couldn't see anything. We didn't run. You weren't allowed to run where we were. You could do the Sangin shuffle, and that was it. Because if you ran, you're gonna hit an IED. Joey ran dead sprint into this cloud of smoke and saved this EOD tech's life. And his wife Emma Pendergast, who's just awesome and keeps his ass in check, thankfully. Uh, she reached out, she reached out to a friend of hers who's a news reporter in Manhattan. And so I had a news interview and talked to them about what was going on. And then we had even more people reaching out and more people saying, you need to talk to Senator Cotton because they're like, and obviously like, I don't really, I'm, I don't want to get into politics. I don't really fuck with Cotton's political views, but, but they had an aide actually reach out to me and say, Hey, if you get him in, we'll get him on a plane, like straight up, just let us know what's going on. Like they emailed me. It was crazy, right? Like I like all of this effort trying to reach out to these representatives and these senators and them doing, you know, basically fuck all to help. And now here's Senator Cotton's office reaching out to me saying, hey, we're aware of him. We know his SIV isn't complete yet. We don't care. If you can get him in the airport, we'll get him in. I have a guy, another guy who's um Damn it, Department of State Security. And he's like, hey man, I'm at the airport. If you can get him in, let me know and I'll do this, this, and this. And you know, we'll we'll make sure we can get him through the checkpoints to get them to where the, the you know the planes are. And I'm like, sick, okay. 
And so I'm in this Marine chat and there's this gunny, there's a video of him on OAF nation going around. You, they don't say who it is. They just, it's just a Marine going around pouring water into little kids' mouths. It's gunny Brett Tate. He's a fucking hero. They should make a movie about him. I don't know if they're going to, I don't know. He might've gotten in trouble for doing what he did. Um, that man saved so many interpreters. I don't think you could account it because all of these enlisted Marines whose interpreters were not going to be helped by anybody else were saved because they went to the Abbey gate and because gunny Brett Tate was there and Brett Tate was like, look, they worked with our Marines. They were in our war. These are our interpreters. We're going to get them out. And that's what happened. So while behind the scenes, um, you know, we're working to get the rest of NB's paperwork set up and working um, we actually had contact with a super high-ranking State Department official on the ground via Stephen Prince, the miracle worker, um, who was also like, we're aware of him. You know, you got to get him inside. We can't really do anything if you can't get him inside. So NB, Medina, and their daughter Dina go to the gate or try to get to Abbey Gate. And along Abbey Gate, there's a canal. And the canal is disgusting. And there's piss and shit and blood in it. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just this giant waist deep canal, not even like chest deep canal filled with trash and shit. And um, it's up against the wall. So that's the only way they can talk to the Marines. So they stand in this canal all night and the baby, the Medina's worried the baby's going hypothermic. And so we're sending her diagram, me and my wife are sending her diagrams and charts and showing her how to do skin to skin contact to try to keep the baby warm. Cause one of Jack Boger is another guy who was really super helpful, former Marine officer. He was like, you know, you should, if it's coming down to the baby not making it, you should consider leaving. And I'm like, it's something to think about, but you're at the gate right now. And so as long as the baby is still breathing, you need to stay at the gate and get out. So next morning, we're talking to Gunny Tate all night. He's like, hey, they told me to stand down. I'm not on the gate for another eight hours, um, but have them hold up the sign. And so we had... Uh, NB's wife Medina write Gunny Tate on a sign in lipstick and wrote NB on the other side and so they're holding it up the next morning Gunny Tate comes out and I don't hear from NB for four hours and on the third hour the suicide bomber detonates his vest in in Abbeygate and kills hundreds of people and one of the guys who was in the chat with the Marines his interpreter got killed by a suicide bomber and I haven't heard from NB and I at the time I'm driving to Virginia um, to because I got reassigned for a FEMA deployment to help with the Afghan refugees that were coming into Dulles International. So I'm driving to Virginia and I get a text from MB that says, we're in, we made it. And I was like, holy fuck. <laughs> and uh, wow. I couldn't pull over it because I'm on 495 outside Silver Spring, Maryland and it's an absolute nightmare. Um, and I just, I couldn't believe it. And uh, Gunny Tate sent a pic, when he got the interpreters through, he would send a picture and so when I woke up that morning, I scrolled through, but I didn't see the picture. So I drove, then I pulled over and I'm checking and I'm looking and I'm looking and scrolling way back to the early hours of the morning. And sure enough, there he is with NB and Medina. And that's the picture that's on OEF Nation and on, I think, NB's page um, of when they got through the gate. And they got through the gate. I emailed Senator Cotton's office. They said, we're getting them on a plane. Um, the State Department uh, contact said the same thing. Gunny Tate made sure they got over to where you know, the passengers were, were waiting to board. Um, and, and that was that. And they, they missed the suicide bombing by three hours. If they had been there for another three hours, they would have, they would have gotten killed. So um, it was, it was insanity. It, it honestly was, it was, 
and I wasn't even there. You know what I mean? It was the most stressful thing, most anxiety-inducing thing I've ever been a, a part of. I feel like, like a, a bit of a coward, but I've never had a panic attack before. I, you know, my anxiety, my, you know, PTSD-related anxiety <laughs> is very manageable and, you know, uh, generally kind of just drives me to be more task-oriented and, and make sure I don't forget stuff. Um, but it was too much for me. Like, like uh, I'm going to bed. And I, I had too many, I had too much to drink. And I was like, how could you get drunk? You know what I mean? What if they call you and you're too fucked up to make a call? You're too, you're too drunk to send an email to, to whoever you're too drunk to do whatever. Like, how could you, how could you do this? You know what I mean? I was like, they're bedded down for the night. Like they're safe, you know, chill out, drink a couple of beers, blow off some steam, wake up and get back to it in the morning. And all the time I'm working, you know what I mean? I'm working at FEMA. My, you know, the, I, my time commitment at OEF Nation isn't that significant. And we were all kind of working something similar at OEF Nation, especially E, the CEO. I mean, he's been he's been at the fore of that stuff, you know, with some bigger organizations doing doing God's work, getting people out. So it was understandable that I was, you know, under this amount of stress and and working with this. And the people at FEMA knew about it um, because they watched the news clip and they watched the OEF clip and they were like, this is incredible, blah, blah, blah. You know, if we can help, let us know. So it was like, all right for me to be in this you know, position, but I just was freaking out. It just was, it was a lot. It was crazy. I, I obviously had been responsible for people's lives and well-being before, um, but never in a way like this. And I said it in my news interview and I will say it again. I would happily do another deployment before I would do that again. I, that was too much, right? Like in Sangin, at least I was in charge of myself when I was outside the wire and I was confident that I would find any ID that I came across and, you know, you can't say the same for somebody who's overseas and who's in Afghanistan and who's not in the Marine Corps and who's going through this incredibly traumatic experience with a nine month old baby and a wife, you know, um, it it's just, unbelievable. It was, yeah. Jeez it, Louise. It was, and so his brother uh, was with him until the last night when his brothers, when they told him that they had to stay in the canal all night, his brother was like, nah. And he went back to Harad. <laughs> which was a bad decision. He got kidnapped and, and tortured by the Taliban for like a night. And then I think he's trying to leave the country now. Um, but yeah, it was, it was crazy. It was, it was absolute madness. Um, oh, NB is, is here in the States now, correct? Yeah. So I went to Virginia to go uh, work at, at Dulles International to help with the Afghan repatriation mission, as they called it. I don't know why it's repatriation because most of the people weren't being repatriated. Um, they were being patriated so i don't really know but that's what they called it operation allies welcome um and i had the time of my life right so i'm deployed with fema for the covid disaster in pennsylvania um and so i've been working with local government entities and nonprofit medical institutes to get funding to recover from covid and make sure they can keep functioning to continue to respond to covid um but I was pulled off that deployment and which was a miracle because they don't let people leave because obviously it's a priority right now um, because they knew about my work with NB. They let me go to, to Virginia to, you know, work with the refugees that were incoming. And so I knew they were coming in to Dulles. They were coming into Philly and I think San Antonio. So I was like, well, hopefully NB will come to Dulles while I'm here. You know, that would be sick. And so I get down there and I'm, I'm working with the, uh, these other interpreters who who got out on SIVs and have been here for a while and they were awesome. They're like, we're really good friends now. They came to my wedding. So I'm, I'm having a great time and I'm getting help and I'm getting to speak Pashto and Dari and I haven't been able to speak Pashto and Dari in, in years. And so it's cool. And for me, it feels great because I'm helping and um, uh, 
you know, I, I done, spent a lot of time studying Afghan history and culture since I got out. Um, and I read a ton about it and I stayed in touch with as many of the guys that we were with as I could. Um, so it was super fulfilling for me just being there. Like I was like, this is awesome. And then I got a text from MB saying they just landed in Dallas. And I was like, Dallas, I was like, huh, I didn't know they were coming to Dallas. And I was like, Oh, you mean Dallas? Are you in Virginia? He's like, yeah. I was like, okay. And so I was working the night shift from, uh, 8 PM to 8 AM, got off at 8 AM, got a text from him at, at nine and met him at the, like the Dulles Expo Center um, around like 10 o'clock. Him and I hadn't seen him in 10 years. And uh, I met him as he was checking in and, and getting all his stuff and met his wife and met his daughter. Um, and it was crazy. I, you know, 10 years, hadn't seen him in 10 years. And like, obviously recognized him immediately. He clearly, you know, of course recognized me immediately, but uh, it was, it was something, you know, it was crazy. Um, That's so freaking cool, dude. That is so awesome. It was wild. what a good story, bro. I got wow. more. I got more. So, yes. <laughs> so, uh, so while we're, you know, while he's down there and he's getting processed, Stephen Prince, the king of New York, um, was like, hey man, he's gonna need, you know, legal help to get his SIV processed and everything. You know, like, yeah, like I was like, well, I got a pro bono person doing it. He's like, well, you know, we'll get like we'll get some good lawyers. And so um actually i'm gonna find the name of the firm so that i can say it out loud because they're you know, it's a thousand dollar an hour law firm right like these are fancy pants super fancy pants uh fifth avenue or park avenue or something like that like these are the real deal uh lawyers and they did everything i just i sent them all the paperwork i had i said hey this is what he needs and that was it. They were like, okay, we'll take care of it. And then it was taken care of. And that was it. Uh, so Jennifer Rakoski at Ropes and Gray. Um, and I mean, they had a whole team um, helping out on it. And I mean, it was, you know, by the time he got processed and left Virginia, his SIV was done and he, he was ready to go. Um, which was, you know, a blessing because a lot of people, our other interpreter, um, his family's been in Fort Dix, uh, up in central New Jersey for two, three months now, waiting for paperwork to get processed. So we were incredibly fortunate to have such a high profile law firm help us out and take care of that stuff. Um, and then well, and it so, sounds like so much of like what you brought together, like all of these individual resources and like kind of pooled them together, like none of this would have happened were it not for you. I mean, like, like, I mean, look at all of these different things, like, you know, talking to the Marines, we've got the State Department people, we've got this law firm like that. That's really inspirational, man. Like that. Well, that's that's what that's the craziest thing to me is you're like the epicenter, like you're like everybody's coming to you. Who's not even there. Yeah, exactly. Like, like like, you're not even. Yeah, that's it. Good on you, man. Holy smokes. I really appreciate it guys. I mean, it was, it was fucking crazy. You know, I don't, yeah. want, I, I don't, and I don't want to like be perceived as taking all the credit because by no means wasn't me alone. Um, but you know, it, it was, it, it was a big commitment. It was a big bite. As I like to say, I don't know if you guys have ever watched workaholics, but the first episode, oh, yeah. you take a, take a bite out of the ceiling tile. It's a big uh-huh. first bite. It's a big first bite. <laughs> big first bite. Absolutely. Uh, and it, it was a big bite for me. Uh, like emotionally and psychologically and uh, 
Um, I mean, I don't regret doing it. I'll tell you what, I, I don't think I've ever been more proud of anything in my life. Um, and so these are the types of stories too, that like somebody who's unaware of what's going on, like me, certainly like this year, as we're seeing the people pull out and the, this bombing happening at the airport, all of this stuff, what you see on the news is, oh, we're going to bring in all these refugees. And it's like always like thrown into this negative light, but that's like completely snubbing stories like this and bringing in the people that like have been serving the U.S. that may not be American because there's a lot of those people. For sure. And that, that was something that I learned, uh, you know, a lot about in Virginia, because every time we got new interpreters, and I mean, for me, it's like, I don't want to pry into anybody's personal life. You know, I know um, a lot of these, a lot of these Afghans that have come here on SIVs have had these incredibly traumatic things happen to them and their families. And so I don't like to pry, but because they find out that one, I love Afghanistan. And two, I speak a little bit like a real little bit of the language. They like that. I end up talking to them all night. And so that's why I learned my friend Barack's story about his rug company. He's also got a YouTube channel called Barack's kitchen, which is phenomenal. It's him making a bunch of Afghan dishes. He also plays a ton of instruments. He does most of the music for his videos. It's crazy. He's like the world's most interesting man. Um, my other friend Ahmad worked with the DEA for 12, I think, 12 years in Afghanistan from 2001 to 2013, something like that. Um, wow. You know, and then like just these incredible, incredible stories. Um, another guy was the first Afghan civilian to be awarded a Bronze Star um, as an interpreter with the Army. He saved some guy's life. Um, and it was like everybody you talked to was another crazy, amazing story. Um, and it was just such a cool thing to experience and to hear because you get it's it's hard to connect with these personal things because we never hear these personal stories you know what I mean like it's one in a million that you hear my story and and B's story and it's not even this isn't even MB's story this is from my perspective you know and um I think it's easy to to kind of separate that from the the big picture stuff because no one ever breaks it down you know you'll hear about one bad story about what's happening and that's it you know there's nothing there's no you know I'm not the only marine that did this I'm not the only american that that did this and that helped get their interpreter and get their friends out because that's that's what it was you know it was this humongous coalition of americans and and allied partnered forces doing everything we could to get our friends out because we owe it to them you know it's like i think we like to act like oh you know you should be happy that you're getting this but it's like they shouldn't be happy they're getting this they're owed this we owe them this we told right, them right. that they would get this if they helped us and we are screwing them over by not allowing them to get it, you know? So I think it's good to get these personal stories out and to hear them because, you know, there's a lot more that goes to it than just, you know, bringing refugees to America. It's, it's so much deeper than that, you know? Well, and that, that's what I was just about to say. If these types of stories were, were distributed, were if, if they were put out for people to hear or read or whatever, I think it would, it would really change the perspective of a lot like the opinions that a lot of people have on the bringing refugees here like no 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 you don't understand like these people that everybody's fighting to get out have probably done more for this country most definitely done more for this country than you have right you know what i I say all the time yeah (laughs) oh yeah you know you're that's quick to call people out who have have sacrificed much more for this country than you have and they're not even from here you know what i mean Mm -hmm. Um, yeah so 
from there, they went to Fort Bliss and they were there for about a month and a half. Um, and while that was going on um, and they're applying for their work, uh, MB put my name down as his sponsor, basically. But it's not like a formal like now you can formally sponsor people, which makes the process much faster, which is awesome. Um, but at the time, it was just like, here's someone he knows. So they're going to try to get him to live somewhere near here. Um, and then um, one of the nonprofits that got a contract from the government to be the caseworkers for MB in Medina reached out to me and they're like, Hey, we're going to put him here in New Jersey. And I was like, look, that's an hour and a half away from me. The whole point of him coming to New Jersey is to be close to me so that he can be around me and my family and my friends. Um, because one of my best friends, uh, Dan Murray, uh, we were in the same squad on our first appointment in Sangin. Um, and, uh, like from that deployment, we formed a bond and we've been best friends ever since. And, uh, he actually moved out here from South Dakota. It was a big help with me in school because we were both in our junior years and I had just started figuring things out as did he. And so being in school together at the same time, same place was like a big humongous boost for us. And, you know, it made school so much easier and made life so much easier. Um, and so he's out here too. And so, and we have a bunch of other friends that are in the Northeast that were in the squad. Um, so I was like, you know, we want him to be here close to us so that we can surround him and that he's got a family when he gets here. Cause he's been saying it, he's got a huge family. He's very sad. He had to leave his family behind, but now he's got a new family. And, and this is from his mouth, not mine. And we are his family, not to say that he's not, cause he is, but you know, um, for him, that was really important. So I told the nonprofit, I was like, you know, you gotta figure it out cause he needs to be closer. Um, so now he lives 10 minutes down the road. Um, and Whoa. yeah, so they came to actually, well, so I got married October 30th. Um, and so they were in New Brunswick at the time, which is about an hour and a half away. But Joe Pendergast and his wife picked them up and brought them down. Um, and they came to my wedding and then they moved down here a couple of weeks after that. So they came to Thanksgiving with us, um, went to my parents' family's house, or my parents' family's house, my parents' house, um, had dinner there and then came back to me and my wife's house here and had dinner with her family. Um, and then they just enjoyed their first Christmas a couple of days ago with us. That's and then super we're, cool. we're, we're That's having his daughter's cool. first birthday here in two days. Wow. What a, you're a true hero for that, man, that you truly have been like an advocate. And I think that that coming back to how the news portrays and how people are seeing refugees and certainly ANA and Afghan civilians, they, they need advocates. And, and I think that you fit that billet. Yeah. I think that's the, that was the goal. You know what I mean? It was, <clears throat> I did a few, um, like, I don't know what you would call them. I guess like speaking engagements kind of where I was talking about what was going on and um, advocate, like directly advocating and being like, you know, this is what's going on. This is what we need to do. Um, and <clears throat> I mean, it, it felt really good it felt I mean it, it's the right thing to do you know it's not always clear what the right thing to do is and isn't and it's not always it's obviously not always easy to to decide to do the right thing um and I am you know not the person to come talk to you about moral high ground and, and stuff like that you know I, I I don't think that that's my place to speak but I think in this exact scenario um I knew what the right thing was to do and that I and I knew that if I didn't do it that no one was going to do it um and that you know we owe it to NB. I mean, 
if no one else is going to do it, then, then I'll do it. You know what I mean? Not to say that like, yeah, if it comes down to it, I guess I'll do it. Like not at no, all. No, no, no. You know? Yeah. We, we get what you're saying for but, sure. We understand. You know, you, you have the ability and, and you have the support. And for me, I have, a, I have a lot of friends and I have a lot of friends who are, who are incredibly helpful and who love me and appreciate me and, and will do whatever they can to help me out. And I think that's ultimately what it boiled down to was, you know, we, this was the right thing to do. Um, and Stephen Prince, so the guy I mentioned from New York, um, he felt personally motivated to help out and assist because his father's a Holocaust survivor. Uh, you know, his father's entire family was killed during the Holocaust and he felt like this is the right thing to do. You know what I mean? This is, this is kind of like a continuation of, of, of saving people. You know what I mean? Not to say that, you know, not to say that we have this savior complex or something like that, but that when you have this opportunity to do this good thing, you should do it. You know, you don't have to boast about it. The guy doesn't talk about it at all. I just keep saying his name so that hopefully he'll hear it at some point because he doesn't talk about it. He doesn't mention it, you know, but that man was instrumental in, in getting NB here. And um, so were so many other people and, and it's a worthy thing. It's a good thing. It's, few things are just inherently good. And um, I think this is one of those things. I agree. I, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> All under the same boat. That's a, a hell of a story, man. Thank you. Uh, yeah. I, I like, don't know what else to say other than thank you. <laughs> well, thanks yeah. for listening, man. It's a lot. I, you know, it takes me a while to get through it sometimes and uh, I get distracted and derailed. Cause I'm just like, you know, I want to paint as full of a picture as possible. And, uh, you know, that can be difficult when telling the story. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you had mentioned before to me that you want to do some kind of like a write-up of this story, like maybe incorporate your, your viewpoint and NB's viewpoint and kind of fuse those together. That would make a hell of a story. I would read it. I would read it. And I don't read very much, but I 100% would, <laughs> would read that. Him, not a big reader. So I don't book. I don't run and I really don't read that much, but I would, <laughs> I would read that for sure. Yeah, no, I, cool. I think it's definitely something um, I think going to try to tackle next year for sure. Yeah, you should, man. We'll be, we'll be standing by for that. Um, kind of, I don't know how you like follow up a story like that. I feel <laughs> I don't, I don't even know what to say. Um, you clearly have a desire to use your position and ability and your history to impact other people positively. This example, this story is the, the perfect example of that. And I think that we can see that in, in your work with FEMA too. Like there's, that's such a high calling to serve other people. And a lot of people don't pitch the military in that light. They don't view it as a service type thing, but it is. And um, I think that's super admirable. Uh, what What's your experience like then at FEMA? Uh, I mean, FEMA, I think for me has been super cool. Uh, I appreciate you saying that about it, speaking to my character, but really I didn't like initially want to work at FEMA. <laughs> I wanted to work at the State Department um, or do something along those lines and then after working with the state department i was like ah, i guess i'm glad i don't work there um but we won't let your boss at fema hear this so <laughs> no i mean i think they'll tell you I, I i mean i've i've said it to them you know it's not really something that i was aiming for so to speak but when i found out about it and um like started going through the application process i was like i i do like this i do 
like the sound of that. I, I do like helping people, you know, it's not that I don't value that or anything like that. It just kind of was like, I wanted to do something that was like foreign policy, intellectually stimulating type of stuff. And it's like, not that FEMA isn't intellectually stimulating. It's just a very different, uh, different animal entirely. You know what I mean? Um, Cause it's all you're domestically helping people and you're solving problems and um, doing what you can to help these, especially small towns and counties and townships kind of, get on their feet and recover from this, you know, beating they've been taking from COVID. So, um, I, you know, I, I kind of just stumbled upon it, but it's worked out great. It's such a professional organization. Um, my, I, it's, it's legitimately the most professional work environment I've ever been in. Um, and that's not a shot at my previous employers, but FEMA is a wonderful, wonderful place to work. Um, they actually do care they encourage you to take days off. And when you've been working nonstop for, you know, numbers of time, period of time, they're like, yeah, you know, you should think about taking a day off and, you know, make sure you don't have anything going on that day, but like, you know, shit, you know, you're not feeling well, you should take a day off. Like imagine being in the Navy and you're not feeling good and, and your supervisor's like, Hey man, maybe you should just go to sick call. You know what I mean? Like, when does that happen? You right, think about, right. right yeah. You think about going to BAS? No, I don't. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, hey, I had nightmares last night. Hey, here's some Ambien. You know what I mean? Rather than go talk to the wizard, like here's some Ambien, you'll figure <laughs> it out. Um, you know, they're, they're super helpful, very much um, like they, they do practice what they preach as far as having this work-life balance and stuff like that. Um all of my leadership have been super encouraging of me and pushing me to kind of find new ways to, to work. And, and, you know, I'm like looking for new opportunities and looking to do different stuff. And, uh, you know, at every turn people will like my supervisor, she'll reach out to whoever and be like, Hey, Caleb's interested in doing something like this. Would you mind talking to him? And you're talking, I'm talking to um, their division directors and stuff like that, that are just like, Hey, yeah, I got time today. And, you know, you're talking to people who are very high ranking, who just will legitimately take time out of their day to talk to you and discuss, you know, your career and what you want to do moving forward and what you're interested in. And I think that that's super cool because people tell you all the time that they have an open door policy. But I think we all know that nine times out of 10 is not the truth. And at FEMA, it has genuinely been, you know, my experience that that is true. They do care. And, uh, you know, it's awesome. I, I, I can't. I can't express it enough. It's such a great place to work. Um, <clears throat> it's tough to get into for sure, as is every federal job, I think. Um, but I think the big thing you kind of need to focus on if you're trying to get a federal job is to really work at the federal resume. You know, there's keywords and stuff that you need to hit that it, that are explicitly stated on USA Jobs and the job opening. And you need to make sure that you're reviewing those things and make sure that you're including them in there and showing how you meet those standards. Um, and it is time consuming, but it's like, look, you know, do you want it? Do you want the job? You want the job? You should work on your resume then, you know, that's what it yeah. comes down to. You know, you should work on it to make sure that you get the job. Um, but I would strongly encourage anybody we're hiring all the time. You know, all you need is a bachelor's to be a core employee. If you want to be, you know, there's a reservist, there's FEMA core for people coming out of high school and college um there are other options you know to get your foot in the door and kind of work your way in and get to know people and whatnot um and i would definitely strongly encourage anybody interested to to get after it for sure or hit me up i you know i'll help out i don't care oh cool i appreciate you extending that offer uh i think you highlighted something there with 
how important resumes are and how it's really not just as simple applying for any job like here or there. It's not just there to show, hey, this is what I've worked at. Like these are my former employers. A resume is how does things that you've experienced or done in the past apply and meet this job description and like writing specific sentences that say, hey, yeah, my time at this job allowed me and I like, I learned this and that will allow me to do this in this new position or, or kind of lining those things up. Um, I think that I had a really misunderstood view of what a resume was until the last couple of years and understanding how you can mold that and put it together to match the job is, is super important. For sure. And I think that there's a lesson in there uh, when it comes to kind of trying to convert, you know, the things that you did in the military and, and see how they apply to, to now and to what you're doing now, because, you know, it, <clears throat> people love to come at riflemen and be like, oh yeah, the valuable skills you'll get being a rifleman, you know, no one cares that you can shoot stuff and blow stuff up. That's true. People do care that I have combat experience in complex planning. People do love that I have, com you know, combat experience in logistics planning. You know what I mean? I hit so right. many wickets and it's, it's, it takes a little bit to kind of take a step back and understand it, but it's like, yeah, you have this experience. You you've done these things before. How can you word it to show that you've done it in a way that makes sense? That isn't just, you know, I was responsible for so many dollars of equipment. You know, you didn't really have a choice. Of course you were. You know, if you lost it, you would have got a, uh, you know, you wouldn't have gotten a honorable discharge. So, you know, it's not right. that big of a thing, but that's all they'll tell you is, well, I was in charge of this many people and this much equipment. That's not, that doesn't say anything. You know, what did you do? Did you write five paragraph orders to get ready? Did you, you know, did you, did you talk on the radio? Did you discuss planning? Did you discuss anything, right? Are you coordinating with higher assets, with adjacent assets? Are you partnering with local forces? you know, through an interpreter, right? These are valuable, valuable skills. Being able to communicate through an interpreter, you need to be able to do that, right? Yeah, like if you can do that, you can do all kinds of things, right? That can open up a whole new world for you. Not everybody's good at it. Yeah, it, it takes time. It takes experience to understand the lag. You know, you have to talk slowly and you have to wait for your response. You know, you have to wait for the response to be translated. Like, you know, there's, there's so many things that apply to... A variety of jobs and, and job openings and you know and and more than that like looking beyond just what can I do with this right like what can I what's the immediate connection you know what does this do for me right like what does what have I learned in the military and what does it do for me right I learned a lot of bad shit that isn't helpful I got really bad at swearing you know what I mean and now I just don't care enough to change it so it's like that's not the most helpful thing in the world but whatever right I know how to turn it off if I have to um but what did you actually learn, right? Do you learn that you can positively impact someone's day by the way that you act, right? It doesn't matter what's going on inside of you, right? You're a leader. You have to present this positive can-do optimism so that you can get your guys to perform to their best. You know, sometimes it doesn't take breaking somebody down to get them to do what they need to do. Sometimes you need to put a foot in their ass. Not all the time, right? Sure. You know, the, sure. the anxieties that come from doing for us, you know, pre-combat checks and pre-combat inspections. I don't ever forget anything. I put everything in the same place all the time. I put all of my like accoutrements into my pockets in the same pockets in the same place 
all the time. So I don't forget my phone. I don't forget my wallet. I don't go anywhere without chapstick. I don't forget my keys. I put it all in the same place. And when I come home, I put it back in the same spot. Yeah, it's a little neurotic, but it keeps me on track. It keeps me from forgetting stuff. It keeps me from being caught out and being, you know, pissed off because I forgot my wallet. I forgot my phone. I did whatever, you know what I mean? You know, you, you kind of, there's more to it than just um, bullets and band-aids, right? Like there's, there's so much more to it. And I think you deal with the human aspect so much, but no one ever tells you that. No one ever explains that to you. You don't ever get a class on, you know, what drives people, right? Or, or, or what influences people. And you kind of learn that over time and you learn to be a people person when you need to be a people person so that you can motivate your team, that you can get done what needs to get done. Um, and I think that takes time and it takes patience, but it also takes, you know, a, a holistic approach to how you understand not just yourself, but everything around you. You know, you really have to invest yourself in your, you have to invest in yourself um while also you know understanding like how you affect other people how you impact other people how your relationships with other people work and why they work the way they do and and knowing that you need to make a change is great but acting on that is better i think and that takes time you know transitions fucking hard you know that there's no other way around it it is not easy you know even if you know what you want to do even if you know you know, grandpappy's got me a job on the local police department. That's fantastic. That doesn't mean it's going to be easy. You know what I mean? It takes time. It takes patience. It takes understanding. And it takes communication, right? You have to be able to talk. So many guys don't talk. You get out and you bottle shit up. And, you know, it was cool for World War II veterans to do it because they're World War II veterans. You know, you saved the world. You can hang it up and do whatever the fuck you want for the rest of your life. They didn't, but you can, right? We don't have that we don't have that gift, you know, we do have to work hard, not to say the World War II veterans didn't work hard, I think they all did, but they could have gotten away with not doing it, you know what I mean? Sure, you save, sure. You save the world from fascism, you can, you can take a couple years off, you know, people aren't yeah. going hang but, the cleats up, right, if you for will. Sure, for sure, you know, and, and I mean, you know, Vietnam vets, for what they were put through, I think earned that as well, I think, you know, we're spoiled by the attention that we're given from society, and yeah, it's not always right, and it doesn't always make sense, and it's way too hero worship you know, esque, but fuck, it's better than getting spit on, you know, getting called a piece of shit and a baby killer. So, you know, how mad can you be? You know, the world wants you in it. You just got to work at it. Yeah. You talked about bottling stuff up and how important it is to like let that stuff out so you can kind of understand yourself, understand, I think, a lot of things that we've experienced because I think getting out and looking back, I, I still have like big questions about things. Um, so you write for OAF nation on the side. How do you think that writing has helped you do that or maybe not helped you? Uh, so writing is like very much my outlet. Um, I don't always write as much as I should. Um, I'm like a pretty good, I'm pretty good at writing poetry for reasons that I don't really no, like it's just come very naturally to me. I had one poem published in the most recent um, Dead Reckoning Collective, like war poetry collection. I can't remember the name off the top of my head. And I feel like an ass for that. But um, like just kind of since then, I've been like, OK, you know, writing poetry allows me to communicate, you know, much more emotion and much more imagery, I think, than my regular writing, which I can tend to be, 
you know, nonfiction and academic to an extent. Um, but, you know, having the TBTs, having this comedic outlet for me is awesome. Guess my go. Anytime I, I have the chance to say something funny or, or communicate a line that I know is, you know, relatively universal and people are going to get it. Whenever I see people talk about, you know, the hashtag that I made in the comments section, I'm like, that's sick. You know, you got somebody to laugh today. That's pretty tight. <clears throat> um, but for me, I think poetry especially is just, it's, it's a really good outlet it's something that i talk about with my therapist she asks like legitimately the same questions like you know what does this the writing do for you and and are you writing you know are you writing enough are you getting it out there um you know i don't really talk about writing poetry i didn't do it for a long time before i submitted work to the book um but since then it's been like you know i i do know that it comes to me i think in waves and it's good for me to elucidate on that when I have the opportunity, when it's within me and I'm cooking, you know, I'm stewing on these ideas and these words and it's good for me to be able to crank it out and put pen to paper and not even pen to paper. My handwriting is too bad. So I just type, but um, <laughs> it's good to have that and to get it out and to say these things and express them because, um, you know, I said it to my mom, you know, I, I can remember being on deployment and always being like, you know, I can't wait to tell, you know, my parents about this or that, you know, obviously not the bad things, but you know, these, these cool things that I've experienced and, and really like amazing things that I've seen and, and been a part of. And um, you get home and it's just not that easy, right? It's not that easy to talk about it because one, you know, I don't want to talk about the war too much. I don't want everyone to think that my whole life revolves around it, but also too, you know, of course it kind of does. I went to fucking war, you know what I mean? Yeah. It takes up a bit of my, you know, emotional energy and, and, and occupies a good bit of space in my brain for sure. Um, but it's also, it, it can be hard to put into words, you know, these nice things, these things that you appreciate because it's hard to take the context out of it and, you know, experiencing the sunrise and, and the, you know, the call to prayer. Yeah. It's scary. Cause you watch black Hawk down, but after you've been there for a few months, it's not scary at all. You're like, Oh yeah, this is, they do it every morning and you're singing along, you know, you're having a great time. The sun's coming up it's not quite hot yet. It's just warm enough. There's like a dew on the grass. You know, it's, it's beautiful. It's an amazing thing to witness. Afghanistan is probably the most beautiful place I've ever seen. Um, with the exception of maybe Mexico and, and I mean, obviously certain parts of America as well, but you know, it's hard to put that into words because when you're saying this to your parents, you're, you know, my mom can't get past the fact that, that yeah, this is happening, but I'm wearing a full kit and I have a rifle in my hands and am out looking for the Taliban you know, it's hard to separate those things out for people back home because that's all they think about, you know, they're worried about you and um, they can't, they're not going to see the beauty in war the same way that you're going to see the beauty in war. Because to me, for the most part, it's all beauty, you know, yet yeah, it, it sucked and there's some really terrible shit in it, but it's like, this is an incredible thing to be witness to and, you know, be a relatively active participant. In. Um, so I think for me, writing gives me that opportunity. Yeah. I, I think that that's right. And I, you highlighted something there. Even when the stars do align and you do have the words to explain something that you've experienced, telling it to somebody who hasn't been there, there will never be the appreciation for that. And I, that's something that I've experienced too. It's you want so bad for people to understand what it is that you're talking about and to like feel the way that you felt on that like one day. Uh, whether it be a, a really hard day or a really good day, but the reality is, is they probably have, won't ever, unless they've been there and, and done that. 
So I think that writing is a cool way to relive that and kind of make it real by seeing it on paper. For sure, yeah, I, I would agree completely. Uh, you kind of mentioned it there a few minutes ago, but will you kind of walk us through what kind of content and stuff you're doing over at OAF? Yeah, so <clears throat> like I said, I write, I write the TBTs, um, the occasional on this date in history, if we can find a good one. Back when we were kind of making our own news articles, I would write the news articles. Um, now I just kind of upload the news um, to the website and then to Facebook. Um, uh, like I said, I do book reviews occasionally. I don't write as many book reviews as I should because I read too much and then I have a hard time remembering what I read and I don't want to be um, disingenuous. You know, I don't want to kind of lead you astray because I'm mixing up my books. Um, but that is something I'm going to try to work on in the new year is try to relay that more because I've been finding some really just phenomenal stuff. And I, I think that uh, it would be good to get you know, to tell people about it and, you know, good things to read and get into um, that people in the veteran community would definitely be interested in. Um, and I wrote a few articles about NB, I think two maybe, um, that like initially I was trying to go through the New York Times opinion page, but they were just super annoying and not incredibly helpful. So I was like, ah, fuck it. <laughs> I'm just going to publish it. <laughs> uh, and it worked out fine. I mean, it, it accomplished what I wanted to accomplish, which was to get it out in time to help. Um, so, you know, any kind of interest piece, my like intent as well as to interview my friend Barack and, and talk about, you know, his journey, you know, to SIV, you know, what he did in Afghanistan growing up in, in Pakistan um, during the civil war, going back to Afghanistan and, and working with a bunch of different governments to, he's like an IT security guy. So he like, installed the security systems at a bunch of embassies um as well as some other stuff as well as like being a consultant so he's done a lot of stuff holy crap i'm telling you he's the world's <laughs> most interesting man i am not kidding um he's a, a really incredible guy super super cool um so i want to do an interview with him kind of humans in new york style um and just kind of talk about you know his journey to come here and his wife and his kids are actually still in afghanistan trying to and the process of trying to get them here and what it's like having them there now and, and trying to, you know, keep them safe and, and keep them fed because, you know, he has money to help, but because of the circumstances, there's only so much that he can do even with the money. So um, it's, I think, super interesting. And I hope a, a really humanizing way to talk about Afghan refugees for people who don't know and who don't understand these personal stories. Um, so that is something that I look forward to um, and a challenge too, because I, I don't really never written an interview before just to kind of close out here, what's a bit of advice that you wish you knew prior to joining? It could be about anything, time in, getting out, any of that. Uh, you know, um, I'm not really sure. I, things have worked out incredibly well for me. I'm a super lucky dude. I, I think that's really been such a constant throughout my lifetime is that I just am incredibly lucky. You know, I, I'm not really like, religious I don't pray or go to church or anything like that you know if 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 God is looking out for me sick you know if not somehow I'm lucky right things just fucking work out for me you know I'm, I'm super duper lucky um but I I worked very hard to get here and I think you know I I had a plan I didn't always know I didn't always know the steps in the plan you know what I mean I think visualizing things as a 
as a, as one stepping stone to another, you know, never really visualizing a summit. Um, just kind of my friend, my, my, my buddy, Dan Murray, his wife, his wife, his mom, Jill dropped a good one on me. And she was like, you know, you get to a new job and people settle in and you're like, you'll be here for 20 years. And she's like, you know, you should really, you should start looking for the next best thing. You know, you shouldn't get comfortable and settled in, you know, don't look at this as, ah, this is good enough. What is good enough? You know what I mean? You should keep pushing and, and keep striving. And I think that's really been a, a big thing for me. It's such a like simple and small statement, but it's really been something that I've applied kind of to everything. And not to say that I'm never satisfied and I'm always hungry. You know, I'm not the rock, right. Or some fucking weird shit. Uh, but, <laughs> but, you know, uh, I do my best to be relentlessly optimistic and to continually push myself and, you know, strive to, to create more, to create more for myself, whatever that more is, whatever it means, whatever it adds up to, you know, I, I don't at the same time sacrifice things in my personal life for this. You know what I mean? I, I, I have work and I have ambition and then I have my downtime and, you know, it's important to have that downtime It's important to appreciate it, but it's important to keep that in check and make sure that, I'm not using that downtime to enable myself to be a lazy turd and not get things done that I need to get done. You know, you're going to have setbacks. You're going to have curveballs thrown your way. And that's cool, man. You know, Barry Bonds strikes out. Look, yeah, the guy does steroids, but could you hit that many home runs on steroids? Fuck no. Right. So <laughs> you, know, you just got to keep no. chopping, got to keep hacking, see how it goes. You know what I mean? Nothing I think is, you know, too bad for you to recover from nothing is is too severe for you to overcome i think that you have to you know do your best to stay optimistic and keep pushing and you know it's gonna suck sometimes life sucks sometimes there's a whole lot you can do about it that is just the way she goes and you just gotta keep on moving you know joe dirt says it best life's a garden dig it brother you gotta keep I was on just talking. thinking of that quote <laughs> just thinking of that it's such that an inspirational funny. movie, you know, very overlooked when it comes to that. But I, I think, you know, Joe Dirt's got it right. We might need to make a, a podcasting note to incorporate more Joe Dirt. Quotes. <laughs> I, think, I think we might. I'll write it down. <laughs> I'll write it down right now. Pass that on to the producer. That guy needs yeah. to get his shit together. <laughs> uh, I think that that's really true, Caleb. Um, constantly just having the mentality of just showing up and being willing to give 100% and stay uncomfortable a little bit so you don't um, fall into that day-to-day -day thing of, like you said, waking up in 20 years and not knowing what happened. For sure. Um, well, this has been really cool. Tim, do you got anything else? Uh, no, dude, Caleb, thank you so much, man. That Just the, the story about MB alone was insane um thank you for sharing that and thanks for being here man you're you're a true inspiration and and a hero for probably a lot of reasons but nb especially so that's freaking awesome dude well thanks guys i really appreciate you having me on and giving me the opportunity to, to tell the story because i haven't been able to yet so i greatly appreciate it yeah oh well, this we're, is, we're happy this is the first time yeah and it's in its entirety yeah holy wow. smokes wow yeah. well that what really changes the game yeah for real <laughs> Jeez, louise i really i really hope we did it justice um if people want to follow along with any of your writing i don't know if you want to put out your personal instagram if you get into that uh where can people go to follow along with you if they want to yeah for sure my i gotta look because i forget because my my instagram name was meat munch 90 
Uh, I got that from Workaholics too. Uh, In true Marine fashion. My wife was like, Jesus Christ, you're going to be on the news. You can't have your Instagram as Meat Munch 90. No one's going to take you seriously. That's so funny. You You should have kept it. Yeah. (laughs) I love it. I love it. So now it's Trika Caleb, T-R-Y-K-A-C-A-L-E-B. Um, cause that's my middle name because Taylor's taken. So uh yeah, Trika Caleb on Instagram. Um, I try to I try to post, you know, at least the stuff to my stories. I kind of don't like posting all my work as like actual posts because uh I find the attention a little embarrassing, but um I do like post updates about how things are going at OEF, new stories, um, when the, when our book came out, you know, when I was published in the poetry book as well. So, um, I think it's a good way to try to keep up with me. Very cool. Well, we'll link to that, to you, uh, and to the book on OAF. Caleb, thank you so much. This has been fantastic. For real. Thanks for having me.